0: So today we're talking about heroes and villains, and you're probably wondering, where in the world is he going to go with this? Well, see, we're going to be talking about Jeremiah today, but before I get into Jeremiah, I want to tell you how we get to that. Uh, over my uh, recent de- uh, um, devotional time, I was going through First and Second Chronicles, which sometimes can be kind of boring. Everybody, anybody ever find the Bible kind of boring? Yeah. I did that, okay, but I'm going through it because I want to be faithful through it. So I'm going through, and at the very end of 2 Chronicles, something jumped out at me. They were talking about how the Israelites, you know, they lived in this community of Jerusalem and just beyond, and, and they were going through all kinds of turmoil because the people were serving gods that were no gods, but they were supposed to have God as their only God. And so there was this transition time where, where, uh, where uh, prophets were coming in and saying, you've got to turn to the Lord. You have to turn to the Lord. And right at the end of Second Chronicles, we see that they were exiled then to Babylon. That rang a bell for me that I've never had a bell ring before. Maybe you recognize Babylon with the story of Daniel. You know, Daniel's in Babylon and he's praying and they arrest him, they throw him in the lion's den, remember, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's all in Babylon. And I'm like, I wonder if there's a connection. You guys probably already figured this out, but this is me. I'm still learning stuff, all right? So I go through this process, and I find out that here, okay, this here, right here, is Jerusalem, all right? And they are then, at this point, now being exiled, and then here, they're in Babylon, all right? So, and here is where Daniel is, with that whole story of Daniel. So I'm like, okay, so what other prophets, or what other things are happening between Jerusalem, the exile, and Babylon, And I found out that there sits Jeremiah. Jeremiah is just before the exile. He's coming up and he hears and he sees the the damage that's happening. They're not serving the Lord their God. And God has called him to do something radical and different for the sake of his name. And if you read through Jeremiah, he goes through that transition of exile. He doesn't get to go to Babylon like, like Daniel did. He's stuck in Jerusalem. Then he goes through Lamentations. He's the weeping prophet. How many has the weeping prophet as their ideal prophet? Not me. But you see, he sees what happened in Jerusalem after the exile. And he's broken for his people because they didn't serve the Lord. He's broken. And that's the story of Jeremiah. But before we jump into that exile, we see and we get introduced to Jeremiah himself. All right? So open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. And that's where we're going to go today. I get excited and I lose my breath. I'm sorry about that. That My wife always says, You're yelling again? You're yelling again? Shh. The kids are sleeping. I get excited. All right. So Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to walk through kind of verse at a time, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to start at verse, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. It says this. I'm reading out of the NLT. The Lord God gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. See, that's a significant verse because Jeremiah is just a teenager at this point in time. He sees what's happening in his community, and he's growing up to become a priest in the priestly work that they are to do. And and as he's growing up, all of a sudden, he's just doing his everyday work. The Lord speaks to him, and the first thing he says is, I know you, and I knew you. Not only that, but I formed you, and I have a plan for you. What would that be like for you if you're doing your everyday work, you know, mowing your lawn? Maybe you're at work and you're typing away and all of a sudden the Lord comes to you and says, hey, I know you and I've known you. I put you together and I have a plan for you. What would that do in your life? Would that wake you up and rattle your cage? It would do it for me. It's like, where did that come from? I imagine that's probably what Jeremiah was thinking. I know you have a plan for me. And maybe today, that's all that you hear today. Maybe all that you're hearing is that the Lord is looking at you as he looked at Jeremiah and said, I know you. And I have a plan for you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be beautiful? He says it to you today. As he says it to me. Verse 6, Jeremiah's response. Oh, sovereign Lord, he said, I can't speak for I'm too young. Jeremiah recognizes his, his inability in the potential ability. I can't do this, Lord. I'm way too young. Maybe you'll have a different response if the Lord were to rattle your cage. What might your response be? Anybody here... Anybody here a teenager right now? Okay. Anybody here looking forward to becoming a teenager? Okay. Anybody here that was a teenager? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. So this relates to all of us. We can all understand that there's a sense that something is about to happen. And so here, what would you do? What would your excuse be? Maybe it's you're too old. I can't do that. Lord, you know all my history. You know all the good things, the bad things. I can't do that. You know that I'm not equipped for that. Maybe you're from too small of a town or too big of a town. Maybe you're too shy. Maybe you're too small. Maybe you have no experience. Maybe your hindrance is that you're a Packer fan. I, I could get shot for that one, I know. i got to put that in, you know. you got to talk about the Packers. I know where I am. I know the culture. What would be your excuse? What would you say, Lord, I can't do that? I think if we think honestly about it, we would find something. Verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord replied to Jeremiah Don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and I'll protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. There goes all of his excuses. And there goes all of our excuses. Jeremiah may have been thinking about Moses. You know, Moses, when God called Moses to do his great work, Moses said, "I'm nobody important. I'm a nobody. I can't do that." Moses says, I, "They won't believe me." And then he says, "I can't talk well." God threw all those excuses out because he's got a big plan for us. What excuses might God be planning might be uh, exiting out of our lives so that we can have the work done in our lives as He desires? See, God is telling Jeremiah that his strength is not found in the struggle. His strength is in uh, struggling with him, God. Let me say that again. God is telling Jeremiah that his strength is not found in the struggle, but who he is struggling with. God is always pointing Jeremiah back to himself. God is telling us that our struggle in our lives, that it doesn't define us. Your struggle, my struggle, doesn't define who we are, but what ought to do is to point us to our desperate need for Him. Have you ever had a struggle that you felt defined you? Maybe it's a divorce. The struggle through the divorce is your definition. Maybe it's a miscarriage and you feel like that defines you, it's kind of put this cloud around you. Maybe it's your singleness. You've desired to be married and you're just not married and you're you're wishing for that so deeply and your identity is in your singleness. Maybe it's in your unemployment. I just can't find work and I can't seem to get through this. You see, when God speaks, we need to listen. We need to listen. And I ask today to all of you, what is God saying? What is God saying? Because... My friends, he's speaking even now. Verse 9. Then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, Look, I've put my words in your mouth. The Lord knows Jeremiah. And he knows that when he touches the exact location of where Jeremiah felt weakest. He touched that exact location. God called Jeremiah to do something and then he equipped that called one. Friends, where do you feel weakest and need a touch from God in order to move forward? The Lord God reminds Jeremiah again that the goal is not his success, but it's in his submission. The goal is not in his being successful in making all people come back to God. His goal is having Jeremiah submit to his will. Are we willing to submit to God's will? Verse 10. Today I appoint you to stand up against nations and kingdoms. I want you to take note of these examples. Some I... Uh, Some you must uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. You see, Jeremiah was set apart by God to do some hard work. Some really, really hard work. Remember, they're preparing for this exile. The people don't believe it. Jeremiah is the only one telling them this is coming. As a matter of fact, all the other prophets, false prophets, are telling everybody else, Oh, peace, peace. It's all good. We don't have to worry. Don't listen to that Jeremiah. He's giving you all kinds of bad things that aren't true. But he was the one that was telling the truth. So Jeremiah had some hard work ahead of him. There's painful hard work and some joyful hard work. See, the painful hard work consisted of uprooting something. There's some nations, which nations are involved with people, right? Nations are a group of people together. A church is a group of people together. It's the individual coming together corporately, right? So here we have Jeremiah being told, you're going to uproot, which means to pluck out, like weeding your garden, taking junk out so that the good might come up. See, we're going to have you uproot, God tells Jeremiah. I'm going to have you tear down, which is to demolish. I do carpentry, right? That's my, my full-time job right now. And, um, and, and demolition is a messy, dirty job. And it's, oftentimes I walk away cut up. It's not easy to demolish something. But God is telling Jeremiah, I'm going to have you demolish some things, which means to break down what was built. I'm going to have you destroy, he says, which is to kill or to vanish, to make it gone, so you don't even see it, out of sight, disappeared. And I'm going to have you overthrow, which means to completely get rid of. Sounds like a lot of hard work. Sounds painful. But there's also the joyful, which is to build up. I'm going to have you build up and restore, which means to restore and put back together. Something that was broken down, I'm going to have you put back together and build up. And then he says, I'm going to have you plant, basically starting over with new growth. I don't know about you, but when I read those things, I want nothing to do with the first four. Sign me up for the last two, right? The first four are really hard and painful and struggling and and tears, and I don't want to do that. The last two, I'd love to be a part of. But you know in life, we don't get to choose oftentimes. See, this is where our lives intersect, I think, with Jeremiah's. Our lives intersect with his in the fact that there's this problem. Jeremiah was told to come against what the people have made sacred, even though it wasn't. Okay? They've built something up and said, this is what we're going to worship, when Jeremiah is saying, that can't happen. You see, they were worshiping idols that were not God. In their time, they were physical idols. They were gold statues. They they were defiling God's own place of worship. And so you ask, maybe, how in the world does this connect with us? I don't know that we have gold statues in our homes that we worship. Well, you see, there's, there's an attitude that often comes that we don't realize. We are actually maybe serving an idol. We might be thinking of God in a certain way that is inaccurate, and that might even be an idol. As a matter of fact, Uh, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, in The Knowledge of the Holy, says it this way, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. Also, he says, Wrong ideas about God are themselves idolatrous the idolater sim- simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. So based on what Tozer writes, if we worship in an accurate and inaccurate view of God, we are worshiping an idol, not God. It's so important for us to know God and worship Him in spirit and in truth, to worship Him in how He is and not who we think or wish that He would be. That's why you come, to be able to learn more about who God is, that you might be able to worship Him well. Again, you might be saying, I don't worship idols, but maybe not like they did, but we have things that we hold sacred. And this, I speak to you as a guy that's spoken, uh, even though I'm a carpenter in, in Minnesota, I have many opportunities to speak in many different churches. And these are very common things that happen in various churches that they hold as idols, honestly. It may or may not uh, validate here in, in Southside, but it may validate in your heart. Uh, one might be a certain biblical translation. Why? We can't preach from that because that ver- that's a different version. Maybe it's grace over truth. This was a struggle for us up in Iron Mountain, Michigan. They, they, I love grace. Please don't get me wrong. I love grace because that's what saves us. Grace through faith, right? That's what saves us through, in, in Christ Jesus. Um, but there was an elevation of grace over truth where when, when as a leader there were some things that weren't going right and when we started to point those out, grace had to trump the wrong that was happening within the church. It had to trumpet to where we weren't allowed to have any real personal conversations to try to make things right. It was grace over truth. They were worshiping grace. They weren't worshiping God who is full of grace and truth, right? But the other side of that might be that you're worshiping truth over grace. Maybe you're too hard-nosed with your Scripture, so hard-nosed that everybody has to align with your view of Scripture, and if they don't, they're wayward and you have nothing to do with them. Balance. Balance. Grace and truth. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe there's a twinge of unforgiveness within you. Maybe it's a historical ministry. Something that you've held so dearly because it worked so well 20 years ago. Why not do it today? Maybe it has to do with the buildings and grounds. I was guest speaking at a, a church in a real rural area in Minnesota and they recently let go of their pastor. Um, they had this uh, parsonage that they were like, I'm not going to get rid of this. We can't touch this thing. And the building, oh my gosh, we've got to fill the building. Well, you know what? That can be a struggle, and that can be an idol when physical things get in the way of how you're viewing God and how you are worshiping God. We don't dare touch the stuff because we've got to make sure we're doing it right. We've got to be careful with that. I don't know what that's like here, but I don't know if that's even anything you deal with. But that's stuff that I've seen in many churches. You see, the reality is that God desires that we worship Him in spirit and truth. This might require some hard work in our lives, just like Jeremiah had some hard work to do. It might have to do in our individual lives, because if we are its church, like I said, our people, if we are the people then we have things that, uh, that God wants to work through. So we might have to do some tearing down. And here are some idols that maybe God wants to tear down in our lives. First of all, we're looking at a church as a whole, okay, as a, as a corporate church here. Maybe we need to be careful about tearing down the idol of style over the Savior. That it's got to be a certain way. Your personal preference of how we do things stands stronger than making sure we're worshiping God in, in wholehearted act. Uh, And and learning and growth. Maybe it has to do with songs or, as I said, translations. Maybe it's a church size. We have to get a certain size. Second idol we may need to consider, or you may need to consider, is a church tearing down safety over the Spirit. I don't know about you, but as I read through Acts, it didn't look real safe for the Spirit to move. (laughs) It was a little bit dangerous because you didn't know what was going to happen. Maybe we're too safe in our churches. And we've got to tear down the idol of safety. You know we want to keep it the same. we don't want to rock the boat. And honestly, sometimes the safety can bring some weak prayers, if I can just be honest, because if we're afraid, if we pray something big, that it might happen, and we don't know how to handle that. I've seen that church after church after church. You see, when the spirit moves, big things happen. People get saved. Lives get transformed. Hope is infused. Marriages are reunited and they're healed. Addictions are conquered. So there's church as a whole, things that maybe God would like to tear down, but there's also church individually. Uh, The church is a group of people that gather together. I keep saying that because it's so important for us to recognize that. The church isn't the building. The church is the people. So, Friends, here are some idols that maybe God would like to tear down. Again, bitterness or unforgiveness. Have you ever said, I just can't forgive that person? I can't forgive them. Jesse, you don't know what they've done to me. If you knew what they did to me, you would say, I have every right to not forgive them. I just ask you this question. What if you change the word can't to won't? What if you change the word, I can't forgive them, to I won't forgive them? You see what that does? That changes from an an inability to an unwillingness. And what if we change that won't to, Lord, help me, because I want to be willing? Is there somebody in your life who owes you something because they've wronged you at some point in the past? They owe you an apology. They owe it to you. I've heard it said that if you found someone that owes you something, you've found someone you haven't forgiven. So maybe God desires to tear down, destroy, demolish, uproot the idol of bitterness or unforgiveness in your life. Maybe it's an attitude of stubbornness or a proud attitude. Um, This is really difficult for you to see in yourself. It really is. Uh, Here are six symptoms of pride got from the desiring God. Six symptoms of pride. Number one, fault finding. If it's always everybody else's fault, you might be dealing with pride. Number two, a harsh spirit. If if people don't like to hang out with you because you're just always so rough, Uh, if you're an 80-grit sandpaper versus a 220, those who do carpentry know what I'm talking about. Number three, superficiality. If every conversation that you have is up here, oh great, everything, good, everything's great, yeah, good. No, that's good. Yep, everything that's good. Okay. If you're protecting yourself that strong that you don't have anybody getting into the inside, you might be dealing with pride. Four, defensiveness. Put the put the dukes up as soon as somebody challenges you, right? Maybe it's attention getting number five is attention getting. Number six, neglecting others. God may desire to take down that. Idol of pride or stubborn attitude. Lastly, um, oftentimes I find in churches that there's this idol of arrogance and knowledge or truth. There's an arrogance that's there. Do you feel the need to point out the theological minutia rather than praying for grace? My first sermon at an uh, Iron Mountain was really interesting. Uh, I got up there and I was super excited, just passionate about what God was bringing us there for. And I got done, and I'm shaking people's hands and getting to know people a little bit. And one guy goes to me, I got a question for you. Oh boy, here we go. He says, how do you feel? What do you feel about Revelation? Oh man, if anybody's ever read Revelation, that's a tough one to just even just pick through yourself, much less preach on. And I'm like, well, here's what I know. Jesus died and rose again. He he's in heaven and he's he's preparing a place for us and he's coming back for us. That's all I know. I don't know about all the symbolism. I don't I don't get that. It's hard for me to gather that. Um, but I'm not going to really preach hard on that at this point because that's not what I sense the Lord is saying. All I know is the big picture. Okay. Well, needless to say, that guy never came back. <laughs> he didn't like that I was getting into the I wasn't getting into his idea of the minutiae of those little tiny truths or ideas that are found throughout Revelation. He didn't want me to talk about those bigger things that, that are about changing people's lives. Um, so that was really interesting about that. <clears throat> See, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And I ask, does that Jesus flow through your life? So he might have us go through some uprooting and destroying, demolishing within our own lives, but he also may have us do some building up and some planting. And I, I, I pray that this is where many of you are some traits of people who are ready to be planted and ready for God's growth, uh, it would be a humble person,? Okay? Somebody who's humble. Uh, James four: six through seven. God says, it says that God opposes, opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God. I ask you, who would you rather be humbled by, yourself or by God? Hmm. Yeah. I say, get to your knees as quick as you can, right? Get to your own knees as quick as you can because I would rather be humbled by myself than be humbled by God himself. I would rather be favored by him. You see, what happens is that God tears down what man lifts up. But we decide we're going to hold and elevate. God will tear down. I actually know somebody that said this. They said, I am the most humble person I know. Yeah, That pretty much took that whole sentence right out of their vocabulary, didn't it? It didn't work. It it negated itself. So, number one, if you want to be ready to be planted and grown, you need to have a humble spirit. We need to be submissive. How ready are we to follow God's ways regardless of what they might entail? Jesus is the perfect example of submission. Philippians 2, 8 tells us, That Jesus submitted to God, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He submitted himself to the will of God to the point of the worst possible painful death ever. God may not ask you to die on a cross, but are we willing to submit our will, our desire, our direction to his will, desire, and direction? Thirdly, a person who's ready to grow, be planted, is a person of peace. A person of peace. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is about to send out his disciples and he's given them some direction. Make sure that when you're going, you're doing this and not doing this. Make sure you find a person of peace to be with. And I ask you, are you a person of peace? Are you a person that when people look at you and they get by you, they just sense Jesus is with them. Three ways to determine if you're a person of peace. Are you welcoming? Do you welcome people into your life and into your home? Secondly, are you open to what they have to say about Jesus? Are you willing to assist? Number three, assist them in ministry and serve well. That's a person of peace. You know it when you, when you see it. When you're by it, you know a person of peace. I challenge you to be that. Just like pride is difficult to see in yourself, sometimes knowing if you're a person of peace, if you're humble, or if you're uh, submissive, it's hard to see that in yourself. You need to have some people around you. Maybe Pastor John might be able to give, maybe the elders be able to give you some insight to say, yeah, I see this in you. Or maybe, you know what, there's a part here that maybe needs some growth. But let the Lord speak to you So I served in Southside four plus long years ago. It seems like a very, very long time ago. But yet it seems like yesterday. I'm so happy to see how God is using the ministry of Southside to do fantastic things. I see your faces. I see God still working in your life. I can see it in you. I hear of different people who are doing different things or have said different things. And and I can see how God is growing you. And I just ask, are you willing to allow God to continue His good work in you? And I ask, what if His good work is hard and requires uprooting, tearing down, destroying, and overthrowing in your life? I ask, are you willing? What if the good work consists of planting and rebuilding in your life? Are you willing to adjust to the new for His glory? something that I've been working through and part of my transition out of ministry, honestly, was really, really difficult for me. I was in a depression for some time because my identity was in what I did. That probably is very unfamiliar for most of you. But my identity was very much in what I'm just teasing. I think most of us kind of deal with that. But my identity was so much wrapped up into my ministry that when I stepped out of the ministry, I didn't know who I was. I worked third shift at Boss Snowplow, putting together snowplow parts together, probably 12 to 15 every night. And that was devastating for me. It was really, really tough. In this process, God has really done some good work in me. It made me cling to his, the hem of His robe it forced me to recognize and look at myself and say, where am I and who am I? And God has told me through uh, some counsel that what I do matters, but who I am matters more. Something that I've been working through is just resting in who I am with Jesus. I am His child. What? I am a child of God? I am loved by Him, not by what I do, but because of who I am? What are you talking about? I could preach it all day long. I didn't live it well. I'm starting to live it. My identity isn't what I do in front of people. It isn't in how many nails I bend or how much money I make. My my identity is becoming more and more in being a child of God. One of the things that's really helped me start to force myself to think, is to actually have times of quiet. That's hard for me. Times of quiet to let the Lord allow him to soak in me and speak to me through silence. So I say all that because that's what we're going to do for just two minutes. I just recently did a sermon on this, and I realized that if we take you know, our 24-hour day and we chunk out our sleeping eight hours, because we all get eight hours of sleep, right? Yes, so 16 waking hours of our day. And if we break that into five-minute increments, we have 200 five-minute increments of awake time. Is it too much for me, is it too much for us, to take five minutes a day, one two-hundredth of our day, and have it in silence before God, being versus doing? That's my challenge for me. And I'm going to ask us to take a two-minute challenge right here. Because the Lord, I believe, is speaking. I think he's speaking to some of us deep into our hearts. And I want to allow the Lord that time for us to listen. Some of you might think, boy, this is weird. But if you've been around Pastor John Long, he does a lot of weird. So, <laughs> Actually, weird is normal. So you just you're used to it. So this might be strange. I'm going to actually, I've got my phone. I'm going to set my timer for two minutes exactly, okay? And I'm just going to ask that we're as silent as we can. And what I have to do oftentimes is my mind is going to go to work, it's going to go to uh, relationships, it's going to go to what I've got to do. But my challenge is to, I have to pull it back. And what I do is I say, oh Lord. And I just try to focus back on who, it is, who I am in God. Okay, and just listen. You might have a different set of words that you might say two to three words that you might say that pull you back in but let's really work hard to try to focus on what God might be saying and then I'll wrap this up sound good okay I could tell by all of the response that we're all good with that so <laughs> okay and the time will start now How was that? Was it tough for anybody? Anybody willing to say, yeah, it was tough for me? Yeah, it's tough. It is tough. It's a practice that I'm trying to work on, and, and uh, it's, it's difficult. You have to make it happen in order for it to be a regular thing in your life and in mine. I think it's valuable. You see, God, has, uh, I believe that in my ministry time, He's really done some destroying He's really torn some things out, uprooted some things in my life, which really has been very valuable. Uh, but also that he is uh, replanting and regrouping us and, and healing us, which has been fantastic. I'm so grateful. Uh, as you know that God has uh, and heard, uh, I believe that the Lord has called us to plant a church in our local area. A little town called Mora, Minnesota. There's a few other uh, areas, uh, small communities in our area. Um, I just really sense that the Lord is leading us that way. He's really given us great favor in the area. I've spoken with Pastor John before making the decision and through two others uh, with some spiritual oversight. Um, maybe you've heard about making wise decisions. One of them is having spiritual oversight, give you, give you um, uh, discernment on that. And so I've had a few others do that. Uh, and I have, we have several people that are excited about God moving us that way. We're really, really early in the stages. We've just pretty much said, yeah, we're working that direction. So, nothing is set, okay? It's very, very early. But uh, we're really excited that God is not only working on destroying what's in us, but He's also planting and rebuilding. And I am really passionate about that. So, my friends, get ready because God is speaking. And I ask you, what is He saying?